How would you answer that question? Would you define yourself to others by your work, by your spouse, your degree, or your family name? Would you define yourself by what you're passionate about or by what you've achieved in life? Who are you? These questions are ultimately about the question of identity. And yet, identity, according to the Western world today, is often defined and discovered and determined by looking inside yourself to your deepest desires and dreams, that your identity can actually be achieved and even invented. You can define and determine your identity, so they say. We see it in the hit Disney princess movies like Moana. As she's discovering her calling, she sings, and the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide, always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. I am Moana. I've heard that one way too many times. This understanding of identity being discovered or determined by seeking to achieve it or even invent it, according to our own desires, is what sociologist Robert Bella calls expressive individualism. I've been mentioning it a lot lately because it's important. It is all over our culture, and we even have the residue of it even in our own lives, and you probably do in your own homes with your own kids. Yet in our sermon passage this morning, Paul will show us that identity isn't determined inside of you, but actually outside of you. It's not something that can be invented or achieved, but it's actually received. Like using a hammer on a screw, we weren't designed to find our identity inside us. Instead, it's received from outside of us. And yet, it will radically shape your entire life. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Over the last two weeks, we have been thinking about how our spiritual maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. We learned that Christ is supreme as the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, that everyone who has been reconciled to him will live lives that are pleasing to him. And these lives are going to be characterized by a couple of things that we've seen. They're going to be characterized by gratitude to God for redemption, characterized by perseverance in the faith while we suffer for the sake of presenting one another mature in Christ, characterized by resting in Christ's victory and resisting false teaching. And this morning, we will see how our identity in Christ actually reorients our focus in life. So let's read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, 6, through chapter 4, verse 6. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear.
appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's a lot of text. I think there's one main idea that I think that we can gather from this passage this morning. And this is it. Understanding who you are will shape how you live. I think that's the main idea. Understanding who you are will shape how you live. And it will do so in all areas of life. Every single area of life, that'll happen. And particularly, point number one, in the church. Point number two, in the home. Point number three, in the workplace. Point number four, in the world. Understanding who you are 
will shape how you live. And it will do so in all areas, and particularly in the church, in the home, in the workplace, and in the world. All right, so point number one, in the church. This section of the letter, verses 1 through 17, continues really what Paul's primary exhortation has been to the church in Colossae back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, where he says, and he commands them, to walk in Christ just as we have received him. And last week, we saw that false teachers were seeking to divert the church from that very thing. Rather than walking in Christ, they needed to do more. They were saying that Christ may be good, but he's not good enough. That to be truly holy, you needed to do this and not that, and you need to have these supernatural experiences. For these false teachers, the path to spiritual fullness was achieved only by a select few. And Paul's response is that you can't achieve true spirituality through man-made religion because man-made religion cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 23. So the question, okay, Paul, but if that doesn't work, then what will? Welcome chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul focuses our attention not on what we can achieve in addition to Christ, but on what we have received in Christ alone. Because understanding who we are will fuel and motivate how we live. Look with me at verse 1. He says, if then, or therefore because you've been raised with Christ. That parallels chapter 2 verse 20. If or because with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world. Again in chapter 3 verse 4, you have died. Paul is connecting our past to Christ. For those united to Jesus through faith, his death, burial, and resurrection is yours as well. Notice those verbs right there of died and raised. To die, it speaks definitively of our definitive split with the old ways of living for the world and its system of salvation based on man-made rules. Being raised speaks to a, being raised to a new way of living based upon Christ whose death and resurrection counts as our own. Paul is speaking right here of our new identity and our new union with Christ. And our union with him means that our life is secure in him. We cannot become like Jesus if we have not been united to Jesus. Our life is ultimately secure in him. Not only did this happen spiritually in the past, but we're also hidden with Christ in the present. Look right there in verse 3. Our new spiritually resurrected lives are intimately connected to the heavenly life of Christ right now. They're hidden with him, meaning that they're secure and safe from danger. But how secure? How secure is your life in Christ? It is as secure as as Christ is seated at the right hand of God. No one can snatch you from the hand of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as Jesus says in John 10, 38. He's the King of kings. He's at the place of honor and authority. Nobody can snatch you from him. Physically, you may be sitting in the pew right now or at your table 
watching this live stream. But spiritually, you are already hidden with him in the place of honor before God. That's where you are right now. That's presently. As one author put it, if you're united to Christ, you are as good as in heaven already. Paul's point is that because we dwell in heaven with Christ, then we're to live like it. Not just go and do whatever we want to do and sin it up. Romans 6, which Paul often bucks against. But no, if we're seated in heaven, we got to live like heaven right now. We need to be so much of heaven that we will be of some earthly good here and now. Paul's point is that because we dwell in heaven with Christ, we've got to live like it. And he also points to our future in verse 4. Because this life is hidden with Christ, we will appear with him in glory. Then, when we appear with him in glory, we're to be who we are now. Basically, what Paul is saying is that our future is to motivate right now who we are to be. We are to become like him. And Paul is using our past, our present, and our future as motivation for how we live right now. The question that he wants us to ask is this. If we've been raised with Christ, if we've been seated with Christ, and we will appear with Christ in glory, then how are we to live right now in light of that? Well, Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above. Paul is calling our heart in our mind, in our will to be active and orienting itself around the things above because that's where Christ is and that's where we are. Those things above aren't just heavenly stuff like golden streets. That's not what it is. But it is everything that is centered around Christ and that is actually reflective of his very life. If our identity is in him, then it makes sense to align our lives after our heavenly identity. So do you see how Christ-centered these first four verses are? He mentions Christ's name five times in four verses. And what we see is that Christ is meant to be the gravitational center of our lives. He's meant to be the gravitational center of our lives around which everything else orbits and holds together. But if he's dislodged from that center place and replaced by other things, then everything loses its gravitational pull and results in chaos. Paul is showing us that when you lose a rightly ordered life around the supremacy of Christ, chaos ensues. That's why he focuses on our heart, our mind, and our will in verses 1 and 2. We won't live a life pleasing to him if our hearts aren't set on the one who is fully pleasing. If we aren't captivated by Christ, then our pursuit of holiness will look just like the man-made religion of the false teachers that we saw back in chapter 2. It will enslave you rather than set you free. We'll try to achieve spiritual fullness rather than living from the fullness that you have already received in Jesus. 
So what about you? What is it that captivates your heart? What are you setting your mind on? What are you seeking after right now? Is it the approval of a family member, a boss, a friend? Is it how you'll provide for yourself or maybe even your family financially under, given this current situation, situation under the pandemic that we're in right now? Is it the weighty expectations that come with raising children? Is it the public perception such as body image, wealth, and the worldly expectation to have everything put together? Brothers and sisters, just as the needle on a compass sets itself to the north, so Paul is directing our hearts to true north, and that is Christ. By setting our gaze on him, we'll reach where we're going, but that won't happen without difficulty. Though we've been united with Christ, we must continue to put off the old self and put on the new, and this happens in every area of life, including the church, which we'll see in verses 5 through 17. Look with me there. In this next section, Paul is really elaborating on verses 1 through 4 by giving instructions on how to seek the things above. He is now linking our doctrine of verses 1 through 4 with our practice in 5 all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Because doctrine is not reserved for ivory towers, but for work in the field of our lives. Having just heard that we've been raised with Christ, hidden with him, and now we will be revealed with him, we must begin to think, right, that we can just kind of let go and let God and he will just kind of carry us to our heavenly home. We might begin to think that. But instead he calls us to be who we are. And he gives us two pictures of describing what that looks like. The first is that there is an enemy that needs to be put to death. There is an enemy that's got to be put to death. Secondly, there is a dirty garment that needs to be laid aside. It needs to be put off. We see the first image in verse 5 where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he gives a list of five sins of desire that are all related under the category, the big umbrella category, of idolatry. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And what we're to see with all of this desire is that it's fundamentally idolatrous, which means that it puts other things, whether sex and money and power, before God, and it rather we desire it over God. Paul is saying that we cannot renew our old nature, but we must put it to death. And friends, This is a reminder that battling sin is all-out war. It is all-out war. Sin doesn't take vacation days, sadly. It doesn't take sick days. It doesn't even take sabbaticals. Sin is after us, and there is no demilitarized zones that we can flee to and go seek safety in from sin. This is all-out war. As the famous Puritan John Owen said, which many of you probably knew that I was going to quote him, be killing sin or it be killing you. We must mortify or subdue our sin because as Owen says, mortification keeps sin 
from depriving us of our healthy spiritual life. The point of this picture is simple. It's simple. It's to eliminate absolutely everything that will tempt you to fall. If it's a person that you've been texting and sending inappropriate messages to, then block that number. It's a location. If it's a location, don't go to that location. If it's a group of friends that you know are bad news, then part ways with those friends. If it's a show or an app that stirs up your desires, well then delete it. If it's a drink, get rid of it. Stay away from it. If it's a website, get rid of your smartphone and get a dumb phone. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Verse 6. Because the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. Just as your union with Christ is motivation for holy living, we're not like the legalist of chapter 2, trying to earn that holiness, but rather we live out of our union with Christ, so is the wrath of God. It's a motivation for godly living. Brothers and sisters, that should stir you up to fight sin by the power of the Spirit who dwells in you. However, if you've come in this morning and you haven't been united to Christ through faith, understand that you are still living for all of the idolatrous things of this world and you stand opposed to God. And because of that, his wrath is coming for you. But there's good news. You may recall that we read just a minute ago from Genesis chapter 3 in our scripture reading. And in that passage, after Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their sinful nakedness by their own effort by sewing fig leaves together to cover their guilt and shame. I don't know about you all, but if you tried to do that, I would assume it probably doesn't work out that well. Fig leaves don't really cover a whole lot. However, as a foretaste of restoration, God made a sacrifice to pay for sin, and he made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and then he clothed them, covering their shame, covering their guilt. The first pair of clothes were removed and replaced. They were replaced by God. Divine garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them and covered their shame and their guilt. Friend, take off your old clothes of sin and shame through repentance and put on Christ through faith. Put on your new clothes in Christ through faith in him, and you will be renewed after the image of your creator, as Paul says. That brings us to the second image of taking off and putting on clothing. Our dirty garments have got to be laid aside in verse 8. The first list of five sins had to do with our desires. The next list of five sins concerns our speech. We're to put them all away because they're based on self-interest. They're based on self-interest. And because we've been given this new life in Christ, we've also been adopted into a new family, 
a new community, not defined by cultural or ethnic or social distinctions in verse 11, right? And that doesn't imply that there aren't distinctions. After all, Paul actually goes on to describe even some of those distinctions throughout the rest of this passage. Instead, he's describing how because we're in Christ, then each member of Christ's body is to be treated with equality and dignity because Christ binds us together regardless of our differences. He binds us together regardless of differences. He is the one who ultimately matters. It's him. So how do we put these things off? If we're to put these things off together as a community, because you have to have somebody else if you're going to speak the way that Paul is confronting right here, if we're going to put these things off as a community, how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12, we put off by putting on. We don't remove sinful actions and sinful desires of our hearts. Instead, we replace those sinful actions and desires. The 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister, Thomas Chalmers, said it best in his sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can find the PDF online. It's short. It's great. It is kind of dense. He said this, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And brothers and sisters, the only one who can dispel your heart of an old affection is Christ. He is the only one that can do that. If we just remove an idol, we'll replace it with another idol. Instead, to conquer that idol, we need a greater affection for something or someone else. We need a greater affection for Christ. And Paul is rooting our faith against sin. He is rooting our fight against sin in our pleasure in Christ. The power to put to death what is earthly in you is fueled by the pleasure that we have in being united to Jesus. As one author put it, enjoyment empowers effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity. So set your mind on things above where you are with Christ. Remember who you are as God's chosen ones in verse 12, his holy and his beloved. We will be able to put on as a body what we supremely adore and cherish. Look at those things in verse 12 that we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, which are bound together by love. All of these things, they imply that Things are messy in relationships. I mean, why else do you have to show compassion? Why else do you have to show kindness and patience and meekness? Why do you have to do that? Because implied, it's that relationships within the church are messy. Notice that we do this by bearing with one another, forgiving one another. This is how we love one another. And yet we walk in these virtues because Christ embodies all of them for us, as seen in his life and death and resurrection in our place. By putting on these things, we're putting on Christ. This is what it looks like to seek the heavenly things, the things above, to put on Christ and to live now where we are. That's what it looks like. 
not just removing, but replacing. And do you see how that happens in verse 16? We do it by teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we love one another is through the ministry of presence. It's just showing up. It's just being here on Sunday mornings, showing up to church where we're being instructed by the word as we sing it to one another, as we pray it, as we preach it, as we sing together, you and I, we are instructing one another as we sing. That's how we teach and admonish one another. That's how we do those things in verse 12 of having a compassionate heart and kindness and meekness and humility and patience. Part of how we put on these virtues is by instructing one another in our worship. So what mindset do you have coming in this morning to this worship gathering? Is it focused on self? Are you focused on a thousand competing spectacles and distractions in your life? What are you focused on? Christ has set us free from the demands of this world in chapter 2. And now we have been set free from the desires of this world to love and serve one another in the church like Christ served us. And doing so protects us from the kind of false teaching that was going on in Colossae. Well, not only does our union with Christ shape how we relate to one another in the church, but it also shapes how we relate to one another in the home. Verses 18 through uh, through 21. Paul turns from the spiritual household to the physical household. Our new life in Christ, it doesn't erase our social relationships, but it actually transforms and restores them under Christ's lordship. And in this section, we're going to focus on two relationships, that of husbands and wives and parents and children. And these instructions concerning the home were known as household codes in the Greco-Roman world. However, as we'll see, life in a home ordered under the lordship of Christ is going to look a lot different from the rest of the world. But notice the, the commands that Paul gives right here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children. And yet, rather than just rattling off a bunch of commands like I just did, God actually gives you a reason. He gives you a reason and a motivation for them. And most fundamentally, they're to be done as is fitting in the Lord or because it pleases the Lord. That's why. That's the motivation for these things, for those commands. It reminds us of Paul's prayer back in chapter 1 that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This was the good order that Paul rejoiced to see in them in chapter 2. And yet, because our old ways creep back into the home, Paul is putting things back in order as God had created them to be at the beginning. He is wanting us to see God's good design in marriage, in the home. And it includes wives submitting to their husbands. Now, as many of you know, that word submission is fraught with a lot of cultural baggage. And for many, it conveys injustice and inequality. And yet, in God's good order, it's not that way at all. In fact, as Paul shows us in the section of the letter, we all submit to authority in our lives. And rather, the problem 
isn't submission to authority, but rather it's the sinful notions of submission. To submit means to order oneself under the authority of another. And by doing so, that doesn't mean that you're unequal or inferior. In fact, both men and women are equal before God. We are equally made in God's image. Both have equal worth in dignity and value. That equality gets fleshed out through the distinctions of the roles in marriage. In fact, Jesus submitted himself to the Father during his life on earth and was absolutely no way inferior or unequal to the Father, but he was co-equal and co-eternal. It also doesn't mean that you submit to your husband if he leads you into sin or abuse. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible are you called to do that. I mean, after all, you get the qualification right there in the verse. It's not fitting in the Lord to do so or according to his good and right order. And if you find yourself in that position, if you find yourself in a position like that, seek help. The elders are here. We're here to listen. We're here to help you. Seek help if you find yourself in that situation. Rather, submission is to be done voluntarily and willingly, not reluctantly, though the wife may often be right or exceed her husband in numerous ways. And so, wives, is your submission fitting in the Lord? Is it based on how well your husband is doing at the time? Are there certain areas in your marriage which you stake your claim and you say, I'm not going to submit here or there, but I'll submit over here. Sisters, you submit not because of your husband, but because it's fitting in right in the Lord. Well, Paul not only gives instructions to wives, but also to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the household codes of the ancient world, nowhere was a husband called to love his wife, much less consider her feelings. Not so for the Christian husband. In fact, notice how Paul qualifies that love right there. Notice how he qualifies it. It's love that's not harsh with their wife. Husbands, God isn't just calling you to consider the physical and spiritual well-being of your wives, as we see elsewhere in Scripture. He's also calling us to consider the emotional life of our wife. When your wife is at a long day with the kids or is exhausted from work, do you get upset because the house isn't in order or because dinner isn't made, and then you let her know about it? Are you lovingly sensitive to her needs at that moment, or do you respond with a harsh tone because things aren't really to your expectations or to your liking? Brothers, love your wives by considering the emotional life of your wife. Well, next up is children that are obey their parents in everything. And children right here are speaking of those living in the home under parental control. The only exception to a child's obedience is when a parent demands to violate God's word. And yet, children, I want to draw your attention to that command right there. Verse 20. Do you see the motivation for your obedience to your mom and dad? Look at that motivation. He says that it pleases the Lord. You don't obey your parents to manipulate them into giving you what you want. 
though we have all done that. I have certainly done that. Rather, you obey because it pleases the Lord. Now think about that. Think about that. Your small act of being home by curfew and obeying the first time that your parents ask you to obey, it actually brings a smile to God's face. Though no one may recognize it, and though you may not be rewarded for it from mom and dad, the Lord of the universe is pleased with you. He is pleased. That's why you obey your parents. And it should motivate you to obey because God is pleased. Children are to obey their parents and parents are to make it easy for them to obey. In verse 21, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke or irritate your children lest they become discouraged or literally lose heart. What's interesting is how both commands the men focus on how their actions affect others under their care. God cares about the good of those under their care. And fathers should as well. Husbands should as well. They should have their children's best interest at heart so that their children doesn't so that their child doesn't lose heart. And yet this can so often happen when fathers seek to dominate their children by being overprotective. Fathers, do you set up such strict rules around everything where your child feels like they're suffocating? Do you put rules around everything to where your kids feel like they're suffocating under that? Are you overly critical or have unrealistic expectations that result in their despair? Do you neglect your children and refrain from disciplining them, never being around to encourage or to instruct or to discipline according to God's word? Fathers aren't to crush their child's spirit by breaking their will. Doing so, it doesn't create an atmosphere, an environment where a child even wants to obey. Fathers, you have an incredible influence on your children. Don't hinder that by discouraging them. Instead, use it to point them to the Heavenly Father's tender care for his own children. As the prophet Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. How you father will shape how they view their heavenly father. Your parenting is a witness to them. Well, not only does the gospel transform how we relate to one another in the home, but it also, trans, it also transforms how we relate to one another in the workplace. So point number three, in the workplace. Paul now turns to bond servants and masters. Now, we don't have an obvious parallel today for the slave-master relationship that was going on during Paul's day. This form of slavery wasn't race-based, which often comes to our minds due to our own past history. Nor do Paul's instructions here actually advocate or even endorse that kind of institution, whether in Paul's day or even race-based slavery. And this is why the ESV translates it as bondservant. Bondservants could actually purchase their freedom, and many worked their way out of slavery to freedom. Many were trained professionals at their work. And so Paul is recognizing the reality of this institution, which often consisted of nearly a third of a city's population, and that some of these servants would actually be in the church in Colossae. 
However, the closest thing that we've got to this today is really the employee-employer relationship. And so for those of you employed, Paul is commanding you to obey your earthly masters in everything, as he says in verse 22. As we've seen earlier, this assumes that the employer isn't requiring you to sin or to deny Christ. However, to obey them in everything includes the projects you love and it includes the projects you hate. And that we're not to obey, how? By way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And we all know what this looks like. We try to work hard when our boss is around. And then we might relax a little bit when our boss is gone. One summer, I had a job working for a beach service at a resort in Destin, Florida. Every morning, we would have to go put out chairs and umbrellas. And the guys around me had this incredible way of stacking like eight chairs on each side. It was incredible. It was something to behold. And they would just like run them to the places where they had to get them to. But then old George, our boss, would scamper away. And instead of doing eight on both sides, I would just do one on each side. I would take it easy a little bit. George was away. It didn't really matter. I could skimp on this. Maybe you've done a similar thing in your own life. Given the situation under COVID, maybe you're working from home and you find it easier to get up and snack every 30 minutes or scroll through social media longer than you should during your work hours. Maybe you justify it by reasoning that, well, since I'm underpaid, I'm not going to give my max effort. I'm undervalued. But friends, Paul is saying that dependability and diligence ought to characterize our work whether our boss is watching or not, whether our pay is what we'd like or not. And why? Because you fear the Lord. It's because you fear the Lord. One evidence that you fear the Lord is that you're dependable and diligent in your work regardless if anyone is watching. And though no one may see you working, Christ does. After all, it's not fundamentally the praise of your boss that you're working for, but for your Lord who gives you the inheritance as a reward. Paul reasons this same way with masters. They're to treat their bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that they have a master in heaven. Paul is reminding them that they and those who serve them are spiritually equal in Christ, who is their master, as we saw back in chapter 3, verse 11. And this verse ought to humble anyone with any level of authority over others. That no matter what kind of authority you have, there is always someone higher and greater than you and that you will answer to. And you're called to be just and fair to all who serve under you because God has treated you justly and fairly through his Son. Brothers and sisters, don't abuse your position. Don't abuse the position that you have for your own self-interest. Treat your assistants, your staff, and your employees fairly, whether it be with regard to time, to money, to task, or any other aspects. You're called to be just and fair to all who serve under you because God has treated you justly and fairly in Christ. The point of all of this is that God expects us to transpose our work into the heavenly key, as one pastor put it. 
Our work serves as a witness to our Lord in the workplace. And so work in such a way that points to him. Our new life in Christ not only transforms how we work, but it also transforms how we relate to the world around us. Our last point, point four, in the world. Verses two through six of chapter four. Up until this point, Paul has focused on how our new life in Christ transforms our relationships inwardly within the church, in the home, and now he turns to show how that happens outwardly in the world. And there are really two parts to this last point. Number one is to pray. Number two is to proclaim. In verse two, Paul commands us to continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul's ending the body of the letter Paul is ending the body of the letter just as he began it, with prayer. And not only the beginning of this letter, but also the beginning of the church after Jesus' resurrection in Acts 1, verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. The first disciples were devoted to it after Jesus' resurrection. The Colossians, years later, were devoted to it. And us as well, today, are devoted to it. Prayer for the Christian is, like a, is not like a fire extinguisher, which is only there if you need it. Prayer is our lifeline. We're to be devoted to it. And not just devoted, but like a watchman on a ship looking out for God's answer, looking out even for false teaching that could undermine the gospel. And the manner of our prayers is that of gratitude. We've seen this theme throughout the letter. Thankfulness is the overflow of our fullness in Christ. Our prayers should always be offered in gratitude because we've been filled in Christ. We're grateful for all that God has done, is doing, and will do. And did you notice Paul's request for prayer? He doesn't ask to be released from his chains. Instead, he asks for more opportunities for he and his coworkers to preach the gospel even while he's chained. This right here is a reminder for us that prayer for physical needs is by no means bad at all. That's a good thing. But it's secondary to praying for opportunities to proclaim Christ and to preach the gospel. It's secondary to that, which is a wonderful example of how to pray for all gospel ministries, whether here or abroad. He tells us that the Lord would grant opportunities for bold and clear proclamation of the gospel. That's what we should be praying for one another as we go out. That's what we should be praying for our supported workers as they go out throughout the world, that they would be bold and they would be clear in proclaiming the gospel. And we're to remain steadfast in praying for these things. Well, turning from words directed to God, Paul focuses on words directed to people. And so we proclaim in verse 5, Paul calls us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Paul's concern is our behavior toward non-Christians. We're to make the most of every opportunity, and part of having that opportunity is through the wisdom of how we live, commending the gospel to outsiders. We need wisdom to discern when and how and to whom we proclaim the gospel to. Not only does it matter what you say, and how you say it, but it also matters in the manner in which you say it. Paul says our speech is to be seasoned with salt, which means not only being wise, but also winsome in how we answer others. Our speech 
should make people's mouths water when we speak of Jesus. Because we have the greatest news to be able to give them. We should do so winsomely like it is the greatest news. But brothers and sisters, do we make the most of every opportunity? Do we sleepwalk through opportunities the Lord places right in front of us without making the best use of the time? What relationships might you actually be sleepwalking on? Where are you sleepwalking on that you need to actually pursue? Is it a family member? Is it a neighbor, a member, a college friend, a coworker, or an acquaintance that you see regularly throughout town? And how do you speak? How are you going to speak when you get that opportunity? Will you antagonize and push others away, or will you actually draw them in by presenting a winsome and compelling gospel? Pray for opportunities and make the most of those opportunities. Look for them. Be on the lookout. I began asking the question, who are you? But that question is better put, whose are you? Understanding who you are will shape how you live in the church, in the home, in the workplace, and in the world for all of life. And so, brothers and sisters, live for Christ because you've been united to him. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that you are in the, in the business and in the job and the work of renewing and reconciling all things to yourself through your son. We praise you for that work. We praise you for how you are reordering homes back as they were. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to pursue that order, that we would live our lives in a manner pleasing of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would not seek to earn true spiritual fullness, but rather that we would live out of the fullness that we have in Christ. Help us to do so by the power that you have given to us in your spirit dwelling within us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.